The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Okay, um, so I know it's been due to the illness. It's been some time since we've met, and what I'd like to do, um, I'd like to try to finish up next time, which means I'll, I'm going to go maybe a little faster than normal. Um, I didn't want to go more than three weeks. If we need to go four, we can, or four actual sessions. Um, why are we talking about baptism? It's very important. Why else are we talking about baptism? Have a better understanding. Um, and why we are not paedo-baptists, why we are... Well, what are the two? Two categories, remember from last week. I'm going to do a quick review here, and I want you to bless me and make me feel like the greatest teacher ever, okay? So don't let me down. What are the two categories? Credo. Oh. <laughs> no, that's all right. I'll, I'll take notes. Notes are good. Credo, which means what? Credo, from creed, I believe, believer's baptism. Good. And then pedo, the German, or the German. The British spelling is P-A-E. The English spelling, you can be P. Epedo, and that means what? That's right. That's right. So, pedo, infant baptism. Okay? Which one are we? We are credo Baptists, right? Baptist, if you are a Baptist, you are by definition a credo Baptist, right? One of the things that makes Baptists distinct is we are Baptistic in our, in our theology, and that means we baptize believers. Only. There are a few weird exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, if you're a Baptist, you're a Credo Baptist. If you didn't know that till today, then now you know you're a Credo Baptist. Um, Brand thought it'd be really funny if we did kind of a simulated baptism with uh, Caleb, and no, I guess it wouldn't be funny, I guess, no? I thought that'd be kind of funny. Okay, um, why do we baptize? What are, the, what, are the, what are the things that come out of baptism? Why do we do it? Besides, say, well, we're commanded to do it. We see it in the New Testament. Why do we baptize? Give me some basic. When we're baptizing, what are we saying? It's a, it's a message to the world. Good. A public profession of faith before God and man. What else? What else? A rebirth. A, a recognition that we have been born again. Right? We baptize believers, so the believer has been born again, and therefore we baptize. Good, thank you, Thomas. Good ecclesiology down at the end of the table. That's 10 points. That means you're coming into the church, right? It's a means by which we receive members into the body of Christ. Excellent. What happens, why do we go underwater? What does that symbolize? The death and the resurrection, right? So you're dying with Christ, you're rising with Christ, you're entering the water. What does water do? What do you do in the morning, most of you? Hopefully, most of you. You shower, and you're cleansing yourself, right? The idea of baptism, that there's a spiritual cleansing taking place that the Spirit's already done. Um, it's a recognition of union with Christ, right? You have been united with Christ in his death. Now you're united with Christ in his resurrection, right? So there's so much meaning for us to this ordinance. We take it very, very seriously. And that's why churches split over this issue. 
Um, I don't think it's necessarily honoring to God, but it's that important. The two main things that churches have split over for the past 2,000 years, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? They're important. Okay. Um, okay. Do you remember my drawing? I had that drawing of the crown, and I had the, I had the little guy over here. And this is our unsaved soul, and then we had the waters of baptism. And in order for him to get over here, he sat over here, remember, and we had the crown up here. And some things happen in order to get from the unsaved to the saved to the waters of baptism. Do you remember some of the things that would take place? An order of salvation or a movement. Do you remember some of the things that we had up here? I had on this side, this was the, the objective work of God. And this is our subjective response to God. How do we get... How do I get this very sad man over here to be baptized? As a pedo-baptist, he's a baby. I'm just going to baptize him because he's a baby. But that's not what we believe. So how do we get across? You remember? Yes, that's the first one, right? So the gospel is going to be preached. That's the objective work of God through witnesses like the Apostle Paul in Athens. Right? So we have a gospel proclamation. What else? We had a few more things we have to take place over here. Do you remember? Good, so we have the Holy Spirit is going to make him alive, or he's not going to hear the gospel. He's going to hear the gospel. The Spirit's going to make him alive. And then one more piece over here. Do you remember? We called it the effectual calling. Do you remember? So the effectual call, this is all God's doing. This is all the objective work of God. This is important because... A pedo-baptist will say, we believe in baptizing babies because they, God objectively does something with them, independent of them. We don't believe that. We believe that God objectively does something, and then we actually uh, participate in that. So you have the gospel being proclaimed, the Holy Spirit changing hearts, the effectual calling of God, and or we also could say that's where we hear, right? But we only hear because, why do we hear? Why did you hear? Holy Spirit made you. Did you, hear, did you hear the gospel before you were saved? How many of you heard the gospel multiple times before you were saved? Hundreds of times. If you're raised in the church, maybe even thousands of times, right? Okay. So, but in order to get to this side, some other things have to happen. What happens on the objective, the subjective side? Once God's done all this, by the way, you're going to respond, right? You're not not going to respond. What happens on the other side? A few big ones. We have confession. Right? You're going to confess your sins. Right? You're going to repent. Which means what? what? What's repentance? You're going to turn away from your sin. Right? You're going to put your what? You're going to put your faith. That's the big one for us in baptism. We're going to do a lot of that tonight. You're going to put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. And then what happens? And then you get baptized. Right? And then, of course... You become, as Thomas said, a member of the church. And the circle is then complete. Okay? So, again, the reason this is important, we believe that all this stuff is happening in the context of baptism. 
right? You, you have the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the effectual calling, confession, repentance, faith, baptism, and joining the church. And this is all happening in the context of baptism. We don't believe that baptism happens independent of these things. That makes sense? Super duper important because that's where we will split with brothers and sisters in Christ. If I didn't, oh, come on. No, that's not funny. You're like, well, were you one of those kind of kids in the class when something happened to the teacher? And you're like, were you? Sarah? No. <laughs> All right, Bran, you going to help me out here? All right, he's on it. What a good kid. Okay. Did I ever tell you the time I was teaching an SAT course at uh, Saratoga High School and I got stung by a hornet? Oh, the kids laughed so hard. That thing flew down the back of my shirt, and it hit me the first time. I went, oh, wow, wow. And then it hit me again. I'm like, oh, I'm being stung. And they thought it was fantastic. I thought, you're all evil. You're evil people. Oh. <laughs> yeah, people falling is funny, though. It is. It is. I think it's funny. All right. Um, so key here for us. Thank you, Brand, so much. It will, absolutely. See, Sarah, that's how you're supposed to respond. You help the teacher. You don't laugh at the teacher. <laughs> uh, one thing that we don't see in Scripture um, or in the early church, actually up to the 16th century, which is an amazing statement, is we don't see a time lag between faith and baptism. It doesn't exist for 1,500 years. When baptism was taking place, faith was taking place. Even in the earlier church when they're baptizing babies, we're going to see tonight that they believe that there was faith there in some capacity given to that child in some way. So there was no separation between the two, no time lag uh, that existed. One of the things that you'll hear if you're talking to anybody about Baptizing babies, whether they believe in baptismal regeneration like the Catholics or the Lutherans or their Reformed Presbyterians, they're not saved, but we're still going to baptize them. One of the things that you'll hear is that the church in the New Testament and the early church baptized babies. True or false statement? It is a false statement, and it's a false historical statement. Um, they'll try to pull some threads out of a few of the early apostolic and patristic fathers, but it doesn't hold up. And most New Testament scholars today, and even, this is fascinating, most church historians that are paedo-baptists do not think that they baptize babies early. In fact, I'll give you, this is from Sean um, Wright. I think I might have quoted this last time. He's at Southern. He said, among New Testament scholars, the view is increasingly widespread that infant baptism was not practiced in the New Testament church. Was not practiced. And most church historians are concluding the same for the early church. Okay? So then the question is what? Where, where did it come from? I mean, how did we go from, if there's no, we, is, there a, is there any evidence of infant baptism in the, in the Bible? There's not one. Now, the argument is, well, that's an argument from silence. It doesn't mean that there's no prohibition either. Well, true, but the Bible, the Bible doesn't prohibit a lot of things. It doesn't mean that it's right to do them, right? It's not necessarily a good argument to say we can't find one example. And we'll talk about, so what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to kind of lay a foundation for you 
of how we got to infant baptism today, why we're even talking about it. I'd like to give you some of the major arguments for it. Next week, or two weeks from now, we'll look at some of the problems with the arguments, and then I want to hit Scripture, and I want to walk you through the major passages that Paedo-Baptists use and show you why they're not good arguments. In fact, most of the movement throughout church history arguing for infant baptism is not from Scripture. In fact, some of the early reformers said, we're not going to go to Scripture, we're going to go to theology, right? But that's not the right way to do it. You want your theology to be shaped by Scripture, not Scripture shaped by your theology. Okay, so the historical progression, are you ready? Are we awake enough for this? Okay. (laughs) Uh, This is hard. This is a hard time. I'd be be like out cold. I'd be in the back snoring. Um, The early church. End of the first, beginning of the second century, there was a document called the Didache. Um, And the Didache was an instruction manual for the early church. And it's very instructive for us, no pun intended, that it tells us about how they approach baptism. So now we're talking end of first century, beginning of second century. So the, the apostles are dead. The apostolic fathers are now, you know, giving shape to theology in the context of Scripture. Um, when you work through the Didache's instruction on baptism, it was only for adults. And there were multiple things they had to do, including fasting and reflection and confession. Okay? So there's no discussion at the end of the first to beginning of the second century in the Didache pertaining to infant baptism. Now, it's reasonable to conclude if they were baptizing babies in the Didache, it would have talked about it. In some capacity, it does not exist. Okay? We fast forward into the middle of the second and into the early third century with a church father by the name of Tertullian. How many of you have heard of Tertullian before? Right, Brent, I know you just studied him recently. So his, his dates are 155 to 222 A.D. Um, he came out because there was, so we see early, and sometime in the second century, people are starting to baptize babies, right? And, and we'll look at some of the reasons why they did that. Tertullian came out, and listen, this is what he said. So he was, he was a, a, a theologian and author in, in Carthage. It's in Africa, uh, northern Africa, north uh, eastern Africa. He, listen, he said, Jesus said, do not forbid them, the children, to come to me. He said, let them come then while they are growing up. Let them come while they are learning. Let them, while they are learning, while they are learning where to come. Let them come, let them become Christians when they become able to know Christ. Let them know how to ask for salvation. In other words, we don't, we don't, we don't want to prohibit the children from coming to Christ, but that doesn't mean that we because Jesus took a child and sat him on his lap that we should baptize them. He said, let them come. Encourage them to come. Lead them to come to Christ. But do not baptize them until what? Until they make a profession of faith. Right? Why would he argue this? Because that's what we see in the New Testament. So we're, we're late now, second, beginning of third century, and the, the emphasis is still teaching against those who are baptizing babies. Around the same time period, a little bit later, 184 to 253, another uh, um, patristic father, Origen, uh, Alexandria of Egypt, he rejected the idea of infant baptism altogether, and he said this. He said, innocent people do not need forgiveness. So he argued against original sin, which we would not believe, but he said, the thinking is interesting historically. He said, babies are not culpable of their sin, therefore they do not need to be baptized in order to be saved. Right? So he was writing against 
infant baptism. It wasn't until Cyprian, okay, so Cyprian, C-Y-P-R-A-N, 210 to 258 are his dates. He was also a bishop in Carthage. Um, And he argued, and here's the entry point, one of the early entry points. He argued that babies are born in original sin, and if they're not baptized, they're in danger of going to hell. Okay? So when you think the beginning of infant baptism, you must be thinking in the context of original sin because that's how it made its entry point in. Okay? So Cyprian said they need to be baptized because they're born sitters from the sin of whom? From the sin of Adam. Okay? Now that's not, that's not bad theology. We just would argue it's not good scripture. Right? I mean, his thinking is if, if they're sons and daughters of Adam, Adam's a sinner, they have original sin, in order to make sure they don't die and perish, then we've got to baptize them. So Cyprian, again, this is middle to late 3rd century. So it wasn't until we get to Augustine. Augustine, his dates, if you are around Joshua, do not call him Augustine. Joshua will grab you by the back of the neck. Every time I, when I was raised, when I grew up learning Augustine, it's Augustine, same guy. Josh, he goes, Augustine, Augustine. Every time I say, well, Augustine, he goes, Augustine, Dad, Augustine. So don't say Augustine around Joshua. Yeah, yeah, actually, everybody say Augustine around Joshua. Even better idea. Oh, good. All right, Joshua, that's for you. All right. So Cyprian, Augustine, I almost said it, Augustine agreed with Cyprian, and he developed an entire theology of baptism Baptismal regeneration. So this is, a, this is a big one for us. When, I, when we, you hear the term baptismal, the phrase baptismal regeneration, what does that mean? What is bap, so baptizing, right, we get that. Brandon? So this is the regeneration this is being born again. Okay, so Augustine picked up from Cyprian and then wrote extensively on it and argued that as a result of original sin that we need to baptize babies in order to make them alive again so that when they die, they will not perish forever. Now, this is fascinating. Early on, in fact, all the way up to the Reformation, faith... And baptism were always together. They never separated. And why do you think that is? They argue if you're going to talk about baptism, you've got to talk about faith. They always go together. Why do you think that is? For 1,500 years of the church, up, up until actually Zwingli was the first one to talk about it separately. Why do you think that people, oh, this is not a difficult question, faith and baptism, because when you read Scripture, what do you read? What's happening around baptism? Remember our order? Uh, not me! There you go. There's the original sin right there. Augustine's right. Okay, remember, remember, in order to get the very sad man to be the happy man who's saved and gets to go to heaven, you have to have faith. 
right? That's part of that entire process of the gospel going out, the spirit making them alive, God effectually calling them. There's confession, there's repentance, there's faith, and there's baptism. They're always together, right? Believers, we believe in credo-baptism, believers' baptism because you can't separate the two, okay? So the early church believed that too. And so Augustine came along and said, well, okay, how, if, if a baby can't make a profession of faith, then how can we baptize them? That's a good question. If a baby can't make a profession of faith, and we don't assume that they're speaking in tongues, right, then how can we baptize them? What, what do you think Augustine's answer was? It gets very creative over the centuries, by the way. I would argue that any time we move outside of Scripture, we have to get creative. Oh, that's a little bit later, but you're so close, sister. Yeah, that's Catholic, right? So you have your sponsors. Good. No, he argued something called fides aliena. Or, come on, what's this mean? An alien faith. He said, alien? Alien faith? Like Martians? I mean, where's this faith coming from? Where do you think, so Augustine starts this, this is, this is fantastic. In the sacrament of baptism, Augustine argued that it was, it was the mother church that gave our beautiful, that's a pacifier, our beautiful little baby, his faith. And therefore what? We can, we'll put some, remember they're doing some sprinkling by then. We'll do our little here. Sprinkle. Faith. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Mother Church, the church, the church. So God, through the church, basically gives you <laughs> shaking your head. Sorry. You don't like it, huh? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, it's infused through the church. What I want you to appreciate is that Augustine would not forsake faith and baptism. They've got to be together. And so we have to figure out a way for to baptize the baby without forsaking the faith. And so it's going to come through the mother church. So that's you're talking 4th century. By the 5th century, the church had formalized infant baptism and baptismal regeneration by the 5th century. So we're, we're four, 500 years into post-New Testament teaching on baptism, and the church had, the Catholic church now, the only church, had made infant baptism formalized and believed in baptismal regeneration. Questions? Tina? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay, so let's do, there are three primary reasons. Three primary reasons why we see infant baptism, well, 
some of these are why they were done earlier, but then they really take off in the fourth and fifth centuries. Number one would be what? What's, what's happening to these babies? A lot of them. They're dying, right? Infant mortality rate is really high. Now, now, now think about this from a parenting standpoint. You believe in original sin. You believe that your son or daughter is born a sinner and you want them to go to heaven and your priest tells you, oh, all we got to do is baptize them. You're going to swallow that pill. I'd swallow that pill. I'd want to believe that, that infant mortality is high, and it was then. So this was a huge, that's why they, a lot of times they were, they were baptized on their birthday early. Tina, go ahead. Yep, yep. Yeah. Isn't that brutal? Oh my goodness, brutal. Mm. Okay, so infant mortality, um, original sin, obviously. The belief in original sin, but a perversion of our understanding of original sin and how it's overcome. Right? We all believe in original sin. We all believe that we're sown in iniquity in our mother's womb. If you've had a baby, you know your baby's a sinner. They sin early, right? 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m. But what we, we don't baptize them because we recognize that they have the sin of Adam. We wait for professions of faith. There's one more, and what, what Tina said, it was citizenship. Right, so... Out of the Roman Empire, becoming a Roman citizen was a big deal. And so babies were baptized into the Holy Catholic Church, right? The Holy Roman Catholic Church. And so there were, there were compelling reasons for um, this movement. We would not say it was biblically based, but I want you to know that there, it wasn't like they just woke up one day and said, you know what, let's baptize baby. That sounds like a great idea, right? There were lots of reasons that led up to it. Um, a question that I, that I will ask, and this might be a good one for you to ask to a paedo-baptist, is this. How did the patristic descriptions and instructions regarding baptism develop within a church that already regularly practiced infant baptism? In other words, there's so much detail, starting with the Didache all the way up through prior to Augustine, on the detailed process of getting baptized in the church why would they write all of that for two and a half three centuries if they were baptizing babies doesn't make any sense right it's a good question uh you're probably not going to get a great answer um okay so by the time we get to 1200 1200s they they got rid of they said you know what augustine we don't need faith at all we're going to argue for something called baptismal infusa. <laughs> Remember, we have to get creative, right? You've got to get creative. Um, the idea is that the sacrament itself, so really quickly, we, yeah, what's my time? No, I won't do that. 
Baptists do some really weird things with ordinance and sacraments. They're much closer than you think. A traditional sacramental perspective of salvation is that God works through the sacraments, sacraments independent of the person in order to generate faith. Okay? So um, in the Catholic Church today, if, if you are a professing Catholic, you will bring your baby to be baptized. And the belief is this. The parents can be atheists. The baby doesn't know any different. The priest can be an atheist. And as long as you are baptizing that baby in the context of the church, the power of the action itself, the sacramental power is sufficient to save the baby. Okay, so sacramentalism is the action that's taking place. God is doing an objective work. Does that make sense? Okay, so by the time we get to the 1200s, the church had embraced in full sacramental salvation. And so they say, we don't, we don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about how the faith, they still kept faith and baptism together. They still had these together. They said the faith and baptism, they have to go together. So they didn't separate the two. But they were arguing that God objectively through the act of baptism does a work and infuses faith into the baby. How did they do it? It was mystical. Right? And, and medieval Catholicism was very mystical. Um, so they said, you know, we don't need to hold on to the whole idea of the mother church. Even today, uh, Patricia, as you said, about sponsors. They said, we don't need that. God does it through the sacrament. You just got to believe that. Okay? So by the 1200s, it's fully understood as, uh, you probably know this phrase, uh, I'm going to default and write it in Greek and I won't, uh, ex opere operato, ex opere operato, have you heard that before? No? If you're a Catholic, you have. Yeah. Um, the idea that it literally means, ex opere opera means by the work performed, by the work done. Okay? Um, in other words, it's saying that the faith and baptism are taking place as a result of the sacrament itself. Ex opere operato. It's happening independent of everybody involved. That's an amazing thought. When I was learning this in my catechism class, I said to the priest, Father Brian, I said, you're kidding me. I said, the priest can be an atheist? Yes. The parents can be atheists? Yes. Everybody in the whole room can all be atheists and not believe in God? Yes. And the baptism is still valid? Yes. I'm like, oh my. Pressed me hard. I believed it. I thought, well, all right. That must be true. Um, okay. So, any questions up to this point? Did I, did I go to, am I going too fast? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so what I want you, a couple things I want you just to know now. Baptism is still up to the Reformation. It's connected to faith. Baptism and faith, they go together. Okay? Up to the Reformation. And regeneration is happening. Okay? Baptismal regeneration is happening. Up to the so the question, the question for the reformers
The question for the reformers when it came to baptism was not, is faith present? It's how's faith present? That's all they were asking, right? They still held very firmly to the necessity of faith and baptism going together. And so, in the Reformation, they held to some form of, this is God, King Jesus, infusing in some way. It's going to take faith and put it into that baby. They would not budge from that. Faith and baptism have to go together. Okay? Um, so the Catholics said, ex opere operato. God does it objectively, independent of everybody involved. Luther came along and said, no, 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 we can't, we can't have that. He, he said, we have to have faith come back in, in some way, in order for that baby to be saved. And so he went for something called fides infantium, infant faith. Okay, he believed in infant faith, in that the baby, <laughs> this is good, baby faith. <laughs> Not your faith's like a baby, it's small, but. That the baby actually has faith. So Lutherans are, they believe in baptismal regeneration also. They believe that when you go and you baptize that baby, that, that baby is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Does, does this, if you've been Baptistic your whole life, do you, you kind of go, I mean, we're, we're so tied into our theology that it's hard to even imagine, right? They think the same about us. If you talk to a Lutheran or a, Reformed or a Catholic, they'll say, you're crazy for not baptizing your babies, right? And they will give you several of the reasons that we've already talked about. Now, Luther came along and he said, he said it's not an alien faith like Augustine. It's not, um, it's not an infusion of faith um, through the mother church um, or even just a sacrament. He said it's faith so whenever you talk about Luther, it's faith in word, right? Faith and word. And so Luther came along and said the way that King Jesus gets that faith into that baby is through the word of God. Now, I don't want to oversimplify that and thinking, well, then it's the Bible. He says, no, he's talking about the, the word in total, right? Starting with, with the Logos, with Jesus Christ being the word of God. And then that coming and infusing the baby with faith. Um, I think I have a quote here. Luther said this. We believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of that infant. See, so, so he moved away from substitutionary faith, right? Faith from the mother church. Faith from the act of the sacrament. He believed in the sacrament, but he actually believed that God put faith in that baby's little heart, and that baby's little heart, if that baby could speak, the baby would say, I believe, if that baby could speak, okay? So that's an interesting movement for us in the progression of, of this thinking. Um, and he said, so essentially, babies, he believed babies have, it's their own, it's their own faith, Now, it's really interesting. Toward the end of Luther's life, he became much more Catholic in his thinking. Um, he actually, 
I, I would argue, his theological perspective on baptism before his death, his latter writings, he was ex opere operato too. He was saying the sacrament has the power. Um, in a little different way, though, this, this, is, this is Luther in his final uh, teaching on this. He said, baptism is nothing else than water and the word of God. This is great. When the word is added to the water, baptism is valid, even though faith may be lacking. So he said, even if the baby doesn't believe, when the word of God is present with water, the baby will believe, for my faith does not make baptism but receives it. And he says, we do it because God commands it. Okay. All right, other denominations that believe in baptismal regeneration. Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Anglican Church, Pentecostals, some. Yep, yep. Uh, United Church of Christ. So it's not a new thinking. In fact, I would say that baptismal regeneration, infant baptismal regeneration has the longest historical record, right? So the infants that were being baptized in the second, third century, they believed they were being saved, okay? Um, some passages to, I'll open your Bible. I want to I do a little bit here. What's my time? All right. Are we still, are we still awake? Are we good? All right. John chapter 3. I'm going to give you just a few. I have too many here. Um, you say, well, where in the New Testament would they ever get the idea that, that baptism saves? Forget about baby or adult. Where would they get the idea that baptizing someone, the act itself, has some regenerated powers, powers to regenerate? John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus, remember John's, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's talking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, say it with me, born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the conclusion is, ah, born of water, it must be baptismal water, and therefore in order to be saved, you must be baptized. Okay? That's a very common interpretation. If you were, do you remember when I taught on John chapter 3? <laughs> no. I don't remember what you thought last week, Pastor. John chapter 3, verse 5. Remember, we drew from, specifically, I drew from Isaiah chapter 4 and Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. When we are sprinkled clean, God makes us clean. That is certainly a teaching, not baptismal water, but born of water and the Spirit, the cleansing power of the Spirit by God when you're what? When you are born again. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to tell Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter. So this is not a good passage to hold on to, saying that baptism saves babies or adults. All right, let me give you another one. Go to Mark chapter 16. So over the past 20 plus years, I've had people in our church come and say, doesn't this teach baptism saves, doesn't it? Because in some cases, it's explicit, it says. So how do we, how do we work around this? Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus said, he who believes and is, say it, and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You say, well, that's proof positive. Doesn't that clearly say 
Mark 16, 16 clearly says that someone who believes and is baptized will be saved. And therefore, you conclude that baptism must... Somebody, somebody fix that for me. Don't let me leave here thinking that there is power in the water. We don't sing that, power in the water, power in the water. No. Yeah, we don't sing it. Help me out here, Brandon. <laughs> You're so bad. No, I'm not. I don't. <laughs> so what do we see here? What we see here scripturally is baptism and faith are always going together, right? We don't want to separate them. We don't want to say that if you get baptized, that means you're saved. If you don't get baptized, that means you're condemned. What we're saying is that baptism and faith are always connected, very close in time, and certainly not by years, infant to 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, All right, let's do one we've done recently. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's famous sermon at Pentecost. Now, you have to help me on this and say that you remember this very well. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, remember, he preaches the sermon. They say, what must we do? He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's pretty clear. Repent and be baptized. That sounds salvific. That sounds like that act in and of itself is making someone alive. What do, you, what do you say to Peter? What do you say to Peter? What's Peter not doing? The theme here is, is the same. It's all connected, right? Repentance, be baptized, forgiveness of sins, reception of the Holy Spirit. Remember our little diagram? How do we get from unsaved to saved? All those come together. Peter's not separating this, saying baptism will save you. He's saying all this is connected in the salvific process of God redeeming a sinner. Um, Can I give you one more? I'm going to give you a really hard one here then. Um, Oh, Let's do 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for me. This is definitely one of the harder ones. Uh, let's start at verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, Peter's dealing with some end times issues with them and uh, the delay. You know, why hasn't Christ come yet? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, verse 20 God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. So you're thinking, oh, wait, judgment, water, water, baptism, it's all related, right? This is great biblical theology. One of the things that baptism, we talked about this last time, one of the things that baptism does represent is passing through judgment, right? I mean, God judges the world. He puts Noah and his family upon the boat and all the animals, and he saves them. They pass through, and so when you enter the waters of baptism, you're passing through the judgment of God because God judges Christ instead of you. Verse 21, baptism 
which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? The boat going through the flood, passing through. Now, here you go. Read it. Say it. Now saves you. Wait a second. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Hmm. You, bet, you better have this in your back pocket when you're talking to a Catholic because they're going to pull out 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this passing through judgment, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That's what? That's physical act of baptism. So there's clarification here. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is important. It does not matter, because you can land on this, is he talking about water baptism or is he talking about spiritual baptism? I believe he's talking about spiritual baptism because he says clearly, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, not as though you're going to go into the physical water. I think it's spiritual. But even if you argued it was physical, it's not disconnected from faith ever. That make sense? They're always together. Go ahead, That's right. That's exactly right. Through his death and resurrection, so too will you be saved. So really important here, anytime you have a verse, like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where someone's going to use, usually it's being taken out of context, right? So just go back, go forward, read that verse in context, and very likely, even if you hadn't studied the passage, the Holy Spirit's going to help you see, oh, that, that, that's not what it means. We know that's not what it means because that's not what he's talking about before this or after this. Okay? So always read. We always want to read in context. Um, okay, where am I? What am I talking about here? Are we, are we at Zwingli yet? No, we're not. Um, okay, questions up to this point. So your thinking is clear. Baptism and faith always go together. You're going to say baptism is always, it's going to go with the gospel and the Holy Spirit making us alive. It's going to go with confession and repentance and the call. It's all going to be together, right? Now, I'll, I'll grant this in the, in the book of Acts. Sometimes the order is not exact, right? But I think I mentioned this last time. The Near Eastern authors did not write like Westerners do, right? We want, what do we want? Point one, point two, point three, point four, and it better be sequential, and it better make sense. They didn't write like that, right? They often would write in, and, and place things in order of emphasis. And so when you read the book of Acts, you go, you know, what happened here? I don't understand it. It's, it says that, you know, they believed. They were baptized, and then they believed. And you said, well, but here it says they believed, and they were baptized. And then it says that they were baptized, and the Holy Spirit hadn't come, and then Peter had to show up, and suddenly the Holy Spirit came. And you're going to see this order of operation, and you're going to want to try to glue them together. Don't do that, right? The, Eastern, the Near Eastern author said, listen, be smart and get, we're talking about these all together. And we can move away from that. Every single, without exception, um, I think the Samaritans with Peter that we talked about in our study in Acts was really the only time that there was any delay of any kind between salvation and baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it's an anomaly, and I would argue that those people were saved, but they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the supernatural sense that we see in the apostolic age. So I would still say they were absolutely saved. Not a single baptism in the entire New Testament will you find, post-Pentecost, will you find the person lacking 
faith, lacking the Holy Spirit, lacking confession, lacking repentance, lacking uh, uh, church membership. They all go together the whole time. Okay? So keep that in your mind. Okay. No questions? Still good? Are we good? Have I lost? No, so I, I do. I don't want to go to this next point if, unless we have a firm understanding. You're thinking faith and baptism and they're glued, right? Bill. Mm-hmm. The quote itself? Yeah. Yeah, let me read it to you again. Um, this was toward the end. So um, most believe that Luther actually started embracing a Catholic perspective of ex opere operato, that the sacrament itself, the sacrament of the word and the water would have power independent of God. Remember, he believed that God infused faith into the baby, that the baby actually had their own personal faith. He moved away from that toward the end of his writings, and he wrote, baptism is nothing else than water and the word of God together, meaning the act itself, sacramentalism. When the word is added to the water, baptism is valid, even though faith be lacking. So he said, even if I can't argue that God has actually infused faith into that baby, he's putting his, he's putting his faith in the power of the sacrament itself, as the Catholic Church did. And then he said, for my faith does not make baptism, but receives it. Um, so, no, 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 no. So, every single, I'd be, be careful, the major Christian denominations that embraced, even the Catholic Church, that embraced a form of baptismal regeneration or baptizing babies, pale baptism, they had a process of confirmation. Every single one, right? So, in the Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, in the Methodist Church, in the Presbyterian church, you're going to move through these stages, right? And so Luther would have argued that at some point in time, if you rejected God as an adult, then you were an apostate, right? So you, he would come under that banner of forsaking the salvation that was acquired at your baptism. Luther would have said you weren't part of the elect, Originally, yes, right? In fact, one of the reasons that baptismal, baptizing babies and baptismal regeneration is so attractive is because it deals well with the apostate passages for Reformed people. Right? We talked about Hebrews 2, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, and you're going, oh, what does this mean? They tasted of the Spirit, and now they fall away. Were they not saved? Were they not elect? Well, this becomes very easy. So, well, no, they were saving their babies, and they turned away, and, and that's, that's what Hebrews is talking about. I obviously did not teach that. I don't believe that's what it was saying. Does that answer your question, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's the break. I mean, here's the massive theological shift for us. Up to this point in time, we have been talking about baptismal regeneration. When we get to, when we get to Zwingli and we get to so Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther. He was the reformer in Zurich, Switzerland. 
Um, and when you think Presbyterianism and Reformed theology and infant baptism, I don't want you to think Calvin first. I want you to think Zwingli first because it was Zwingli who made the break. Calvin jumped on his coattails and then developed it in the Institutes. But it's, it goes back to Zwingli. Uh, okay, so let me do a little... All right, so I want you to note this. For 1,500 years, 1,500 years plus, any baby that was baptized, they believed, was regenerate. Saved. Okay? There was no such thing as baptizing a baby absent faith. There was no such thing for 1,500 years of the church. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because this makes Presbyterian baptisms new. Very, very, very new. Now, a Presbyterian theologian is not going to argue that, but when we look at 1,500 years of the church, if they baptized a baby, they believed that, remember, faith was somehow coming into that baby through the church, through the sacrament, uh, through the infusion of God himself, Somehow faith was connected and therefore that baby was saved. Zwingli came along and said, nope, nope, we're going to separate the two. And he was the first one to do that. So let me give you a couple definitions here of Presbyterian paedobaptism. Presbyterian or Reformed paedobaptism is Is non-regenerational. Meaning what? Presbyterian paedobaptism, baptizing babies in the Presbyterian church, baptizing babies in the Reformed church, does not lead to regeneration. They are not saying that when you baptize that baby, that baby's born again. They do not say that. So in order to not say that, what do they have to do? Come on, what did they have to do? They had to say, faith and baptism are, oh, oh, they're separate. Brand new teaching. It's brand new. Not in scripture, not in 1,500 years of church history. Um, I do believe, I do believe it is a completely wrong approach toward the theology and doctrine. Completely wrong. Um, Okay, so what did they believe then? You know, I'll, I'll read you a couple here. Um, the Reformed view. When I say Reformed, um, that can branch off a few different ways. Dutch Reformed, um, the Presbyterian Church, you're thinking OPC. Um, um, uh, come on, United Presbyterian Church, UPC. Um, but Calvinism is probably most attached to that thinking. When I say Reformed or Presbyterian, um, Calvin's definition of baptism was this, the sign of the initiation by which we are received into the society of the church in order that engrafted into Christ we may be reckoned among God's children. So he's saying, I'm not saying that children, that when you baptize a baby they're saved, I'm saying that when you baptize a baby we're bringing them into the family of God. Okay? And you say, well that sounds nice, that sounds sweet, right? 
I, I like that thought. It's not a good the- theology, I don't think. Um, another definition, baptism makes available to infants, listen very closely now, all the benefits and privileges of the covenant and we're going to talk about covenants, which must be appropriated by faith. It is the sign and seal, you'll hear that over and over, of their belonging to God's covenant community. And of course, they're going to draw that from who? From Abraham. You're going to draw that from Abraham. Um, here's probably the best, one of the better definitions. This is um, from Francois Tertigny, Geneva, 1623. So we're close now, closer to Calvin. He says, the cause of paedobaptism, the cause of baptizing babies, is not the actual faith of infants, so here's your separation, but both the general command to baptize all members of the church and the promise of the covenant made to parents and also to their children. And then he quotes Genesis 17 and Abraham circumcising Isaac and then Acts 2 verse 39 in the sermon I just read to you from Peter. In regard to infants, he writes, to whom the sacrament does not cease to be efficacious, it has effectual power and ratified on the part of God, so God's doing a work, although on the part of man it cannot be known or received by faith. In other words, the Paedobaptists in the Presbyterian Church say, we have no idea whether or not that baby believes or not. They're going to say, we don't know. We don't, we're not going to say he's infused by God or the church. or the We say, we're not gonna, we don't know. They certainly will say we do not then say he or she is saved because he or she was eight years old and we baptized them. What they will say is we're going to be obedient to the command because that's what we see in Scripture. Um, Okay, so Zwingli. Zwingli's dates, 1484 to 1531. Um, Do you know how to, how do you pronounce his first name, Bill? Well, is it? Good, very good. See, that's how, say that nice and loud. There we go, all right. And then I'll add Zwingli to it. Thank you, brother. Okay, so this is fascinating. Zwingli, now remember, the, what, what's going on at the Reformation? What was the big movement of the Reformation? What's the term tell you? Reform. What were they trying to reform? The Catholic Church, right? So you have 1,500 years, well, really from, um, from Constantine, so 1,200 years, of a theology locked in the universal Catholic church. The reformers came along and said, you know what, we're not seeing a lot of scripture here. We're not seeing a lot of teaching coming from the Bible here. And so they're pushing back against the Catholic church and they're reforming the Catholic church. So Luther is doing his thing in Germany and Zwingli's doing his thing in Switzerland and they're working at the exact same time together. Right? So I just told you, Luther came up with a whole, he said, we're not going to go ex opere operato. We're going to believe that God somehow gives that baby faith. He said, I'm going to go on this route. In fact, Luther and Zwingli got together and they got in an argument over this. A few other things, but they argued over baptism. Because Zwingli came along and said, I'm going to separate these two. I'm going to pull them apart. I'm going to tear them apart. That wasn't his original approach, though. So let me read to you. This is Zwingli in his early thoughts on baptism prior to the Reformation coming full circle. He writes, baptism is an initiatory sign which introduces or pledges us to Christ that in him we may be new men and live a new life. And then he said, your outward baptism ought to show you that you cannot continue in the old life. And that's what he's saying. A baptism represents regeneration. It represents faith by a believer. Um, and there are several other quotes here. But he changed his tune. He did not believe that original sin 
was necessary to baptize. He believed in original sin, but he didn't say you had to be baptized for that. So what caused Zwingli to change his theology? Do any of you know? Our friends called the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were part of the Radical Reformation. Um, They were called radical because they were arguing for things that even the reformers like Luther and Zwingli and eventually Calvin did not argue for. One of which was credo-baptism. Credo-baptism, which is a believer's baptism. They came along and they were arguing, hey, wait a minute. This whole thing about baptizing babies is unbiblical. Uh, We would say they were right. Right, we're, they were baptistic. We're baptistic. So they go back to the scripture and say, "We don't see baby baptism anywhere in here. We don't see anything about baptism saving babies. We don't see anything about baptism being part of a baby coming into the church." So they can't find it anywhere, and they're right. You can't, right? So they started baptizing adults. The problem is, so Anna Baptist. Anna means again. So an Anabaptist is someone who's been rebaptized, right? So they were baptized in the Catholic Church as babies, and they came along and said, we need to, we're going to practice believer's baptism. And so they started baptizing adults. Well, that did not go well anywhere. It did not go well in Switzerland. It did not go well in Germany. Um, in fact, Anabaptists were some of the first persecuted believers in the church by other believers. Hmm? One of the most famous that you've probably heard of Um, Do I I want to get here yet? Um, um, Yeah, let me go here really quickly. Uh, Felix Mons. Felix Mons, M-A-N-Z. He was an Anabaptist. Um, He was part of the Swiss Swiss Brethren. And um, they came along. So in Zurich in 1525, so this is really early. Remember the, um, the 95 Theses were posted in 1517, so... We're, we're, what, eight years? Eight years post the very, very beginning of the Reformation. So we're early. Um, but Zwingli's convictions on this had come full circle, and he believed that infants were to be baptized even though it wasn't connected to faith. And so in Zurich, the Council of Zurich passed this, listen, quote, children should be baptized as soon as they are born. Whosoever will not do this must with wife and child goods and um, chattels, leave our city, jurisdiction, and dominion, or wait what will be done to them. They will be killed. And then they passed another law saying that anybody who participates in the rebaptism of someone will be put to death by drowning. So one of the most tragic, there were many Anabaptists that were killed. Felix Mance, I mean Felix Mance, who was a Swiss brethren Anabaptist, um, was rebaptizing. He was called to recant. Um, I don't have my dates here, I'm sorry. Um, he was called to recant before Zwingli, and he said he would not because his conscience could not allow it. He believed in a believer's baptism. He was sentenced to die, and so they took him out to the Lamotte River, and they bound his hands and feet, and as they were taking him, he was preaching the gospel. So it's such a fantastic story. And his mother and his brother were saying, do not turn, do not recant, stay the course, Christ will redeem you. And, and he was drowned in the lake of Zurich. Um, really dark times surrounding the paedo-baptist movement for believers, um, baptistic believers like us. Some very, very dark times, both for Calvin 
and for Zwingli as the Reformation made its way through. Later, yes, but much later. Third generation reformers, yes. Once, um, actually once the Universal and Particulous Baptists started coming up, because the Anabaptists, there was lots of theology there. Baptists do not trace their history to Anabaptists, but there was the Baptistic piece we do. Um, so yes, there was third and fourth generation, yeah. Okay. What's that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so here's what Zwingli decided. Baptism is external, faith is internal. Baptism is external, you get in the water, faith's internal, that's something God's doing in you. We don't have to have, he argued, we don't have to have the two together. And as soon as he did this, as soon as he split the two, now think about it. Every single passage you read on baptism can be reinterpreted through that lens. If we can talk about faith over here and baptism over here, then I can read passages about baptism and faith, and sometimes I can connect them, other times I can break them, and that's exactly what Zwingli did. He went back and he reinterpreted all the baptism passages in light of these two now being separate. Okay? Now, as soon as you do that, then suddenly, now doctrine can become very easy in how you approach Scripture, right? The problem is we would not say this is a good hermeneutic. We'd say this is a bad way to approach Scripture. Right? We want, here's a general principle, we always want Scripture to shape our theology and practice, not our theology and practice to shape Scripture. Zwingli said, I'm going to separate these two, I'm going to break them, even though they can't be broken in Scripture, and as soon as he did that, now you have an entire theology, a baptism, that we would say does not align itself with Scripture. And I will, I will argue that the Presbyterian view, the Reformed view of baptism is not biblical. And the reason we don't practice it is because we don't believe it to be biblical. If we did, we'd be baptizing babies, would we not? I mean, if we're going to fiercely hold to the Word of God, we're going to say, then we, we need to start baptizing our babies too. Um, okay, uh, so c- let me do this. Can I, can I introduce a couple things here to you? And then we'll, we'll jump back into, you say, well, how, how then? So we got a problem here. If, if Zwingli, <laughs> Zwingli came along, Zwingli came along and he said, you know what, forget about Forget about Fides, Eliana, and forget about the sacraments, the sacrament actually giving the baby their own faith. He said, I don't, I don't need any of this because he said we don't need faith with baptism. We don't need it. So that whole argument goes off the table. 1,500 years, mother church, God himself, sacrament, just, we don't need it. But the question is then, why still baptize babies? I mean, he had to have... There were lots of reasons. Again, infant mortality was still high. It was still part of citizenship in Switzerland at the time. So he needed another theology to figure out how to baptize babies. So he did like poo, and he went tink, 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 tink. 
and he came up with something brand new. So I want, I want you to get that. Um, we, we believe in the scriptures as taught by 2,000 years in the context of the history of the church. Presbyterian paedo-baptism is a new theology. And you say, well, it's, it's 500 years old. It's not that new. That's new in the context of the church. Right? If you pick something up in the 16th century, well, you're grabbing on to something new if it's context of the church. Okay? So what did he do? What did he do? Yeah. So he goes, oh, here we go. Let's go. Let's go Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, we see what theologians call continuity. Some serious continuity. And I'm going to develop this because we, we have to do covenant theology a little bit in order for to get you to really get a firm handle on what that means. I'm not going to do it tonight because we're going to run out of time. Um, in the old, under the Old Covenant, what did Abraham do with his children and his children's children? It was circumcision, right? <laughs> no. So circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant. And so Zwingli came on and said, well, yeah, you know what? That, that, that's good. I like that. So the sign of the new covenant will be, it'll be baptism. So that's the sign of the new covenant. And if the old covenant and the new covenant, which they argue are essentially the same, and they do argue that, they argue are for um, a, a, what's called a, um, a fierce continuity, and we're going to look at how they're actually separate. He said, and, and Abraham, who did Abraham circumcise? Who was circumcised under the Old Covenant? Every male supposed to be on day eight, regardless of belief by anybody. There was no connection of faith, right? I'm not saying that circumcision was not connected to faith. It was. That was a piece of it. But everybody was circumcised. For how long? For how long was it required? Until the new covenant, right? Until Christ came along. Until we, we've actually just seen this in the last few weeks with the, with the Apostle Paul, right? Remember the Gentiles saying, do we got to get circumcised too? And he's like, no, 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 right? So, but the key is, if under the old covenant, circumcision was a sign for all of God's covenant people, and we baptize, we, cut, we uh, circumcise babies under the old covenant, then we better do what? We better baptize babies under the new covenant. This is overly simplistic, but I want you to make the connection. Zwingli went to the Old Testament and to the covenant of circumcision to tie infant baptism together. That was the means of keeping it. It wasn't to save the child because of original sin. It wasn't to impart faith to the child. It was to do it in obedience to the covenant, the overarching covenant of grace. Okay? So Hebrew children with their parents, circumcised Christian parents will, will baptize their children. And for this, for this, Zwingli said, we have now solved the problem. We can baptize babies and not even talk about faith. 
right? No need for any faith at all. Um, Zwingli said there were, there were two signs in the Old Covenant, circumcision and Passover. And he said there are two signs in the New Covenant, baptism and Lord's Supper. I mean, these are all, these, these parallels are incredible. And there are a lot of good parallels there. But there are also some great, there's some great discontinuity where they don't line up perfectly. Um, okay, so I want to close on this. Some of the major passages, and we're going to look at this in detail. Luke chapter 18, remember, the disciples are trying to keep the children from bothering Jesus. Jesus is teaching, and Jesus said what to them? Do not, let, do not prohibit the children from coming unto me. Well, that's a major passage Zwingli drew upon to argue for this. He also drew upon many of the household baptisms, which you now know so well. He said, oh, that's, that didn't make sense in that context in the book of Acts. And So again, even Zwingli said, I'm not going to hold on to Scripture here because there's not a lot to hold on to. I'm going to hold on to Old Covenant, New Covenant teaching. Again, that's theology, not Scripture shaping the theology. He also, he also argued for John the Baptist and Jeremiah, who, remember, by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of their mothers. That, 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 these, some of these get a little bit nutty to me, that I'm not, I'm not going to base an entire ordinance or sacrament of baptism based upon John the Baptist leaping in the womb when Mary comes in to the presence of Elizabeth. That's, that's not good exegesis. Um, if you heard that and you were listening, you go, hmm, hmm, wow, that's a stretch. But he had to stretch because there isn't scripture there to substantiate this. Um, when he was asked about confession and sin, this is what he said. He said, I refuse to argue the point. For if the text does not establish infant baptism, it does not disapprove of it either. Well, what kind of argument is that? It's an argument of silence. You're not going to be satisfied with that, right? You're not going to be satisfied with that. Um, Okay, I'm out of time, so questions and then questions. Tina. Yes, 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 so, good. They drew upon First Corinthians chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Correct. 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 Yeah, yeah. Well, Zwingli and Luther went at it over this teaching, baptism regeneration versus infant baptism without regeneration, and they were arguing Scripture. Um, so, 
we want to be super gracious here. This is the Reformation, right? So you have 1,200 years of Catholic dogma slammed into your head, and they're seeing Scripture for the first time. And we love Luther. We love Calvin. We love Zwingli. All we're going to say in this is they, they didn't finish the Reformation in the context of certain things, one of which was baptism. We would say to you, keep reforming. Keep going. You stop short. You held on to something you shouldn't have held on to. That's what, that's what we would say. Um, because so much of what they went back and interpreted script, they're, they're spot on. We would say, yes, amen to it. We would just say they didn't go far enough here. So again, if you're going to hold on to a theology that's not going to be substantiated well in the word of God, you're going to have to pull something else in. In this case, they pulled in, they pulled in three things, and I'll close. They pulled in one, the covenant of grace. And I'll talk about this more in detail uh, next time, but um, I don't believe this exists, by the way. Um, most, I don't know how I even ar- argue this, what the title would be, but um, they believe in a large covenant of grace. They're all, the covenants are tied together. Um, that's a strict Presbyterian perspective, and so he's going to argue that the old covenant, the new covenant, they're really not different. It's all part of the covenant of grace, right? And I'll, I'll give you some details on that. They argued, the second big thing was covenant community and this is a big one that Abraham's children entered the community through circumcision without faith the children in God's church should enter the community by baptism without faith so that that makes perfect sense okay so they argued covenant of grace they argued they argued uh, the covenant community and uh, what is the last one? They, yes, thank you. Covenant sign. Which you talked about briefly. Right, the sign and they argue. The sign and seal. How we enter and how we stay. And so this really, this was loosely developed by Zwingli. And this was codified in the Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 15, and Chapter 16 of Calvin. And this, this really, these three, if, you, if we understand these three, and then you understand the problems of these three, you'll have, your, you'll have the whole thing will make perfect sense to you. You'll go, okay, now I know why we don't baptize babies. Okay, their entire theology. Okay, that's fun stuff on Wednesday night, isn't it? Come on, that's great stuff. Good stuff. All right, questions? So I want to be really, really fair. There there are a million details to this, right? This is a very, very complex theology. I don't, I don't want to present it in such a way that I'm minimizing a mind like Luther or Calvin or Zwingli. Um, these guys wrote more books than I'll ever read. All right, so we're talking about master theologians. Just because they were able to do that doesn't mean that we cannot, as believers in Christ, with the word of God, say, wait a minute, I'm gonna pause on this and I'm gonna critique it, Okay. So there's lots of detail to this. What I'm trying to do is give, give you a, an overview of it, probably more than just an overview, um, so you have an understanding of, of what it means for um, someone to baptize a baby, either regenerationally or non-regenerationally, and, and why you don't. And you hopefully have a good reason for that, because if they're right, you better baptize your babies, 
right? I mean, you'd be foolish not to, especially if it's baptismal regeneration. Then you're withholding salvation, which would be a horrible thing. Tina? I got you. Yeah, yeah. So the what Zwingli started and Calvin established is still the prime. Now there are lots of nuances by it. Um, uh, Randy Booth, who's a pretty well-known Presbyterian author, he has some subtleties to it. We'll talk about some of those small things, but the essence is exactly the same. It's old covenant, new covenant continuity, and we're just going to move from the old covenant into the new covenant, and these things therefore stay the same. No, it would be Calvin. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Calvin. Yeah. Calvin was a little older. He was second generation. Well, yeah, second generation, technically. Mm-mm. Okay. All right, can I pray? Father, we thank you for this time. Um, forgive me, Father, for going too fast or putting too much in or not enough. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would help us understand uh, this most important doctrine in the church. We, we want to, as we saw from the sermon, Lord, we want to know truth. Um, if we're, we're worship you in spirit and truth, then we want to make sure we hear you clearly speak to us from your word. I pray you would make us very gracious. Um, we're so thankful for our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian faith. Um, make us gracious and seeing, Lord, that if we see something clearly, it's only by your grace. You've shown that to us. Um, I do pray, Lord, that you would uh, solidify why we only baptize believers. Um, help us to understand that and know why, and help us to understand why we don't baptize infants. Um, give us that clarity for our own walk in the context of this Southern Baptist Church, and that we might uh, be a good witness and testify to this ordinance with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Um, we want to be children of the light, so I pray that you would uh, cause that to take place in our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, for a blessing upon my brothers and sisters here. I thank you so much for their being here and their desire to learn this. Um, I ask, Lord, that you would cause it to go deep um, and give them a great love for you, that you would actually engage us in this most magnificent way. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.